That's what it is. We've quickly found out that putting your name on the bottle shows that you are a family. Yeah. And you are not just fought up in some corporate boardroom right. by and some executives. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm super excited today because I am interviewing Zach Brindley, who is the chief bootlegger and owner of Shipwreck Rum. So welcome, Zach. We're really happy to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Christy. I'm honored to be here. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit. You guys have a really interesting story about how the brand started and how it's evolved. So why don't you start at the beginning and give us a little trip so down you want the uh, You want the long story or the short story? I'd love to. <laughs> Something in between. Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. My father and I have been Caribbean rum runners now for two decades. So what does that mean? What is a Caribbean rum runner? Tell people. Well, it's basically like that. Like basically we're producing our rum in the Caribbean. This little island of St. Kitts, St. Kitts and Nevis, smallest country in the Western Hemisphere, just south of the Virgin Islands. And being that we're Americans getting into this business with a history in the islands, too, my father has had, that just like rum runners, it kind of goes back to the whole bootlegger idea of crossing borders mm -hmm. with rum or with any spirit. And obviously, I say bootlegger or rum runner, but we are paying our taxes. <laughs> it just has a better ring to it. It does. So yeah, we've got into this business back in, my goodness, we incorporated in 2002 and started selling on the cruise port to cruise passengers in 2003 on St. Kitts. And really tourism was kind of just getting started on the island at that point. The story goes back a lot further than that to 1986 when my father started manufacturing these temperature sensors on the island. I was seven years old, got to be the Lucky kid from New Jersey. They got to go to the Caribbean a couple times Amazing. a year with my dad. It's kind of crazy how he took the leap to get to the islands. Goes way back when starting a business was a lot different than it is now. Yeah. When you had to rely on a phone and a fax machine. He started a business in North Jersey making these little temperature sensors. He was always a wannabe engineer entrepreneur. Oh, he was an accountant by trade. And he started this with another guy who knew the science. And they started... In the beginning, probably when I was born, like, what are we getting ourselves into? But then they kept at it. And sure enough, a few years later, he had the U.S. government as a customer and he was selling parts of the stealth bomber. Wow. And it was in the mid 80s after the Grenada crisis. I guess a lot of islands were going independent of their mother countries. And St. Kitts went independent of the U.K. And basically, you don't need to invade St. Kitts because there's no traffic lights and they weren't in there was no rebellion going on. But basically, it was Reagan's idea and the U.S. idea that we want to put capitalism, seed capitalism, and give people jobs, and then they're happy. So it was basically a free trade deal. And my dad saw in the back of a trade magazine that you could basically, this island had a lot of labor and they needed employment. So my father started, decided to go down there. And before you know it, he had a general manager, found a factory. Fast forward to the 90s, he was the largest employer on the island with 500 employees. Wow, how and, amazing. Um, yeah, he got involved with a little resort because you don't want to pay resort rates when you send your engineers down there. So that was kind of like the backstory. And then in 2001, he had to close his operation down 
because I say it's at that point, the Far East was really where manufacturing was and his big competition was kind of putting him out of business down there. So it's kind of when one thing fails, something else starts. Opportunity smacked us in the face and we thought tourism is growing in the island. What do tourists buy on a Caribbean island? It's a bottle of rum. Wow. And, uh, That's an interesting way to start a business. Yeah. And we just knew that the cruise port was built. The Marriott was being built. We loved the island. We always knew that there were a lot of really interesting infused rums down there from St. Martin and locally done at restaurants that had natural vanilla in the rum, almost like, you know, restaurant infusions. And I just thought at the same time how in the States you had, of course, you had Malibu and a couple other ones like Captain Morgan and Parrot Bay, but mm-hmm. all of them seemed kind of low proof artificial. Yeah. Fake. Inauthentic, right? Not authentic. Yeah. And this is yeah. before craft was craft. I mean, yeah. if you go back into craft beer before that in the nineties and the early two thousands, it was micro brews. Yeah, craft wasn't even really a category, but we knew that there was a room for doing something better. And I always knew that coconut rum just sounds like a wonderful vacation. I mean, even if you're a guy or a girl, yeah. coconut rum sounds like a vacation. So we're getting into the rum business and here we had to decide to partner up with this little distillery that was on hard times. That's when we really knew that the idea was gold because the Rothschild had a distillery, Baron Edmund Rothschild. He passed away in the 90s. He sold the distillery to Demerara Distillers. This is now I'm telling the long story here. <laughs> that was, uh, they had a brand called El Dorado and they were buying kind of like a diamond in the rough, a Rothschild estate in the Caribbean in St. Kitts. But little did they know that the Rothschilds didn't want them you could buy the distillery, but you couldn't use the name Rothschild. So they were kind of uh, at an impasse. And here we came along as not some crazy tourists because my dad had been on the island for 20 years. And we thought, oh, we could import this CSR, Cane Spirit Rothschild. And then we realized there's a lot of rums out there. And if you're selling straight white rum in the beginning, what makes you different? Yeah. So we thought, you know, if we're going to do this and sink some money into it and our passion, we need to do something we care about. And something that you could really sell on its own merits, even to a non-rum fan. So we thought coconut rum is big, but there's a lot of coconut rums. Vanilla is a delicious flavor, and it's a hugely popular flavor. A lot of rums have vanilla notes to them. So we thought a vanilla would be an awesome rum to start with. So that was it. At the same time, we knew the port was being built. So we got the first kind of storefront named the St. Kitts Rum Shop, and we started selling to basically moms and dads and grandparents getting off the cruise ships. Wow. And what are you going to give them to taste at nine or 10 in the morning? Something that has a good taste to it. Yeah. So that was really the, the start of let's do something that has a good taste and that you could sell to, to a non-rum fan at 10 in the morning. Yeah. So that worked. And so then tell me, no, you didn't. That's good. It's interesting to hear how you started it and what you were thinking about, because you may not have been successful if you just had a regular old same as other yep. rum. And so that's interesting that you did something different and tell me what happened. You know, how did you get from that? Right. Which was mm-hmm. almost, you're, you're going to have your 20 year anniversary pretty soon. So that's exciting. I know. I so should be very get... proud. You know, we really yeah. have come a long way. You have. And I mean, so many businesses don't even make it for five years. So you're already so far beyond that, but what happened then? So now you're well beyond selling rum to yeah. tourist cruise ships. So talk a little bit about how the transition went from that to what you're doing now. Yeah, well, it's kind of crazy when I look back, almost pinch myself. I never dreamed I'd be in the rum business with my father, you mm-hmm. know, especially for this long. Yeah, here we are now with our brand, eight different varieties, sold in four countries and nationwide, Amazing. doing 50,000 cases a year. I mean, I 
It's like almost doing between one and two pallets a day, every day of the year. Boggles my mind. But in the beginning, we were, the idea really was, we're not going to conquer the United States. We're not going to take down Captain Morgan. We just want to do something that would be a really cool business to get into. And there's obviously, the tourists want to buy something. We'll just sell it on the island to tourists getting off the cruise ships. And it would be a successful, small little business in the island. And I think what happened that we really weren't thinking ahead as far as the business plan, that people purchase the bottle at the rum shop, and then they take their cruise back home and they say, where can I get it? Yeah. And all of a sudden, if you have a product that has, it's all natural, it's delicious. I mean, it's a flavor rum that can be sipped. It doesn't have to be blended or, you know, drowned into a rum punch. You could just sip it straight. It's so smooth that we realized they get home and the coconut rum on the shelf doesn't taste the same as the one they got on their vacation. So they start asking and begging for it. And enough people start begging us. We think, what's going to stop us? Let's just import a container and, you know, we'll be off to the races. So you fast forward probably three years from when we first started selling in 2005, we got a service firm to help us get started and do all the paperwork, brought our first container of at that point, just vanilla rum. And I thought, oh, look at all the liquor stores. Look at, I mean, there are so many liquor stores and bars. I'm going to be able to sell this container, dad, in like a month or two. And then a year later, I'm like, dad, I'm still selling this container of vanilla rum. And I think in the beginning, I would go around and I was passionate. I mean, heck, I was probably 25 years old. You know, I was barely, I just started really drinking. All of a sudden I'm selling a bottle with my name on it because at that point it was before we really got the trademark shipwreck. We had just put our last name Brindley on the bottle. Mm-hmm. We put gold because we had won a gold medal, which is another good story. And we decided at that point, what do you call it? You know, and we had a different name for it. We had, at one point we we're going to call ourselves Cooper Coopers because Coopers and Coke grew up on Cooper Ave, Cooper mm-hmm. Smith. That trademark was taken and it's probably better off because in the beginning, having our last name Brindley on the bottle made a lot of sense because we were passionate about it. People were immediately like, oh my goodness, you're Brindley. I'm like, yep. And I just put the name on the bottle, but at least on a bad day, you could sign the bottle and you got a meeting with the distributor because you were the guy behind the, the label. And I mean, that um, was even before it was really cool to have a family owned brand that had a really great authentic story. Like you guys were ahead of that. By a lot. We were almost a little embarrassed to put our name on the bottle. We mm-hmm. were proud, but it's almost that feeling of, you know, look at me. I've got a yeah. rum company. You know, I yeah. put dad's yeah. picture on the back and he was pretty embarrassed about that. But then we realized quickly the value of it because yeah. all of a sudden you could really sell on family. And at the beginning, we weren't thinking of selling on family. Yep. But especially when my dad and I come along and we're Two nice, happy-go-lucky guys. Everyone's yeah. like, "Oh my goodness, you guys are the Brindleys!" Yeah, of course. I mean, you think about that compared to a brand like Captain Morgan that no one knows anything about anymore. Seagrams yeah. is like the biggest company. Like, who even knows? So it's awesome that you guys are so involved with the brand. That's what it is. We've quickly found out that putting your name on the bottle shows that you are a family. Yeah, and you are not just thought up in some corporate boardroom right. by and some executives. There are, yeah, there are associations that automatically get made with quality yeah. and with care and all that stuff. Yeah, I say that we've been small batch before that was even cool. When yeah. we were small batch, that's the only way we could do it because we only yeah. had a few that's barrels in one tank. And now every big company says they're small batch. But getting back to like when we first had that container of vanilla rum, it brings back memories. I remember I you know, made a list of every store in two counties in North Jersey. And I went door to door and people looked at me like I was crazy. And I think this is really before there were so many small and craft brands out there. Mm-hmm. You're talking in the 
2006, 2007. And they looked at me like, who are you? Do you make this vanilla rum in your bathtub? Is it legal if I buy it from you? And I was like, yes, yes, it's delicious. I don't make it in my bathtub. But, and they were like, what's the deal? I'm like, what's the deal? Did you taste it? It's delicious. But then of course they bought into that passion and they were like, you know what? I'll take three cases if you come back on Friday and you sell it yourself. So I found myself doing tastings all over the place. And in no time, I we had like probably a hundred accounts in New Jersey and New York buying and I was running all over the place and dad was making collection calls. And I was like, dad, listen, don't scare them away. All right. I realized you had to go back to, you know, every two weeks, you have to go back to every account. So kind of learn the value of distribution then. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And then we got to Mopichi, our great partner, Opichi family distributing yep. as our distributor, in New Jersey. They kind of evolved into all seven of their markets. And now they're our U.S. partner. So they basically bring in one to two containers a month from the island of St. Kitts, and they control all the air distributors in the U.S. and kind of work as a perfect partner with us. We both chip in money for promotions and Mm -hmm. marketing. And yeah, we've had a really good run. The last three to five years, it's gotten a lot. The pitch has not changed, but it's become a lot easier to sell. Yeah, I'm sure. it's, It's kind of interesting how, you know, you... You survive long enough. And as I said before, we didn't have enough money to lose doing the wrong thing in the beginning. Yeah. It was kind of a trial and error. And we kept doing the things that worked, which were tastings, minis, point of sale stuff, and just basically selling it on true passion. And we were always lucky to have the Caribbean and St. Kitts behind us, this little island that was proud of us, that was really growing their tourism. I mean, when we first started they probably got a half million, maybe even less tourists a year. But now before the pandemic, they were up to like 1.3 million tourists a year. So in the wintertime, when it's cold up here, everyone's going down there. And on a good day, we'd get eight cruise ships a day oh, wow. coming to the island. So so where are you now from a, like what size of business? What's next for you guys? Like what are your goals for the next five years? I always say that we are definitely in that, if you think of the beer world, a successful craft brand. That's a good analogy. And we're kind of just biting the big guys in the backside, which feels good. I mean, we're definitely on the radar. We had three years in a row of rising star brand in Beverage Dynamics. So we're up to producing us, producing and selling 50,000 cases a year, which is amazing, but it's still just a drop in the bucket for the big guys. Yeah. But we're able to scale up. And as Opichi says, as our partner, that really the goal is in two to three years, hopefully almost double or triple our size in the United States as far as sales. And which seems crazy, but the difference is once you get that big, it's a lot easier to do bigger programs. And it's almost like when you have a baby that you care so much about, and there's so many different avenues you could take it down. That's the hardest part when you know there's so many great sales angles. There's so many things you could do. It's almost not, what are you going to do? It's almost choosing between which direction to go in at a certain moment. And the market's changing so fast, especially during the pandemic. You know, last year it was like we're trying to do, you know, the cocktail boxes to go. And then we were Mm -hmm. working on logo to go cups. There were so many different things we were doing. And now, as I said, tastings were a big thing. I mean, I personally have probably done thousands of tastings. I think I've probably signed with my paint pen. I've probably signed 25,000 bottles of rum. Wow. I saw a few being sold on eBay. But wow. you can't sell a full bottle on eBay unless you drink it and put some sand in it or something. That's wild. It's a little embarrassing. And then, yeah, so right now the pandemic 
has changed it so much where obviously we can't do the tastings. So we've invested in putting in a lot more minis of all of our flavors to try to at least distribute the taste out. I keep thinking it's the time to do a big, you know, really beach marketing campaign, like have a Yes. Uh, have a ship, you know, a shipwreck ship coming up and down the coast. Of the, That's fun. You know. I've never seen that before. That's a cool idea instead of a plane. Yeah. That's I mean, a good it's, idea. it's like having a, a floating shipwreck somehow. It's yeah, a we've, fun brand. I mean, you have a fun brand that's got so many amazingly positive associations with it. Like that isn't true for every spirit, like the Caribbean and rum. It just takes yeah. somewhere in your mind as soon as you start thinking about it. So that's really awesome. And to be able to sort of recreate that experience for people, even when they're not there, I think is very cool. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Even even though you can't get to the islands this year, you could take a sip of our shipwreck coconut rum and close your eyes and you really feel like you're there. Definitely. That's cool. That's exciting. It is exciting. And I love talking about this because you kind of remind yourself kind of like any entrepreneur when you're in the normal day to day. That's a question I get a lot. What's your normal day to day? I'm like, it's just like anyone else. You're trying to keep up with purchasing materials, not running out of product, balancing cash flow. Because to get from A to Z, sometimes you got to go from A to B and then B to, you know, F, you keep jumping and then hopefully you don't fall back too far. But we found a few ways to kind of jump forward quicker, having good partners. It's true. You know what you said about like you're in the day to day and you just have your head down and you're just trying to make it all work and you don't get the opportunity to step back and appreciate all the things that you've done and what you've created and what the potential is unless you have these kinds of conversations where you just get reminded, oh, I did that. That's amazing. Oh, I built this. So what's standing in your way, like from a challenge perspective, what do you see as your biggest challenges in trying to double or triple your business in the next few years? See, I always say my father's more of the macro view. And I think Opeachy gives a macro view of the whole picture of the yeah. trends of the market. Yeah. Like, is it the can do the, the cans in the RTD or is it stick to what's working, stick to the core competencies? But being the guy that's been getting it done and buying the corks and doing the events and keeping it going, I always think of like the day to day. How yeah. am I going to do that on a micro level? And your macro view is probably. Do you take the plunge on a bigger marketing campaign? Yeah. We have, which is really taking the risk of like, now's the time mm-hmm. to invest more. And in. we have our moment. Let's push our coconut rum. Coconut rum is our bestseller right ahead of our shipwreck spice and our shipwreck vanilla and our coconut cream. But the coconut really is, I mean, if you think of flavor rum, you almost, and if you're not a rum fan, you probably think of Malibu, the white bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you taste our shipwreck coconut rum, there is no question how much better it is. So it's kind of like, I think that's the one flavor that we have real room on because the spice rum is delicious too, but Captain Morgan really has dug its heels in. I mean, it's hard to beat the captain. We're not even trying to beat the captain. We just want to be in the discussion. So I think the coconut rum is one to go for. And if you do that, all right, let's do a marketing campaign. And as my mother would say, would be the marketing campaign would be Kind of like Tito's. I say, basically, we're like a year or two away from being the Tito's of coconut rum. Yeah, that's exciting. I mean, and that's it's, the idea is it's kind of, you know, my mom thinks it should be me on a beach you know, <laughs> with, with a monkey next to me because there are monkeys on the island, of, more monkeys than people on the island of St. Kitts. Wow. Which is, I say, don't, if you Google St. Kitts drunk monkeys, I take no responsibility. Okay. <laughs> So somehow it's kind of like a takeoff on the Tito's ad with the dog. Somehow I'm selling coconut rum and there's a monkey or something like that. 
even though I should be turtles because we support the turtles. We do give 10 cents back for a bottle on the turtles. That's amazing. That's um, a really good thing to talk about. Sea Turtle Monitoring yeah. Network. So it's probably, the macro picture is probably just take the plunge and really, you know, spend some money on coconut or a big marketing campaign. You know, the micro of what I see as far as day to day, our biggest challenge is that we have some markets that we crush it in. And obviously in St. Kitts, when tourism starts again, we do great there. New Jersey, because we are an, a New Jersey company as well. I'm in our bootlegging headquarters in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. I think the idea of bootlegging, especially in this part of New Jersey, being close to Sandy Hook Bay, strikes a chord because of all the bootlegging during Prohibition mm-hmm. here. So I'm kind of bringing back bootlegging, but the legal way here. So we do well in New Jersey. There's a few other markets we're doing great in, Maryland, Florida, but it is hard sometimes to translate the message to other partners. So I think that's what probably all your entrepreneurs have. Yeah. Basically, you have something that works. Anyone that tastes it or gets it, whoever like basically understands it, like cannot believe how good it is. But it's tough in this cluttered world yeah. to go to another market and get through because everyone's got their own, the big brands that are paying yeah. the bills, let's say in a state like Georgia or California. Yeah. And how are we going to break through there? And usually back in the day, it was a handful of salesmen or a manager to get the message. And then it kind of goes, but it's hit or miss. It's really tough sometimes to get it out there. You need to spend money to get it in, on the tip of their tongue or actually to taste yeah. it. So that's faith. the challenge. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you've done it in other places. So I think you have evidence that says it can happen. It's just a matter of how you make it work for those particular places. But or maybe hashtag get shipwrecked or that, <laughs> or it's as we're trying to win out hashtag shipwreck summer, which is kind of like, you know, you yep. take a yep. photo and you could win a prize kind of thing. So, you know, try to embrace more of the social media too, which is wonderful. I mean, you know that too. It's wonderful. There's a million things out there, but yeah. I do think that with a trademark like shipwreck and the idea of getting shipwrecked, get shipwrecked responsibly, it has I a stickiness to it, but you remember it. Definitely. I think that's a really big deal. And I think that I know that you and I talked about the name and the naming convention and should you focus on shipwreck? And I think there was just so much yeah. fun and memorability in that. So that's really cool. Yeah. And um, even doing this right now, we should say right now, anybody who's listening, the, the history with our name, obviously we're the Brindleys. We started out as Brindley Gold and it was probably after five years or so that we were coming out with our aged spice. And we realized that in other markets, People didn't know who Brindley was and they'd say Brindley. And I'm like, you know, it's rum is a nautical spirit. And what's nautical about St. Kitts? We don't want to be hokey, you know, like General Brindley's. Right, right. And we wanted something authentic, just like the island in the story. And we thought that, you know, before St. Kitts was a tourist destination, it was kind of an adventure travelers, eco travelers and scuba divers because there's so many shipwrecks off the coast. And this goes back to the old in the 1700s with the sugar wars of the British and the French and the Dutch and the pirates and all these, you know, they basically scuba dive for shipwrecks. And I thought, oh, shipwreck, that's a great name. And I'm thinking wreck on the rocks. Who needs Captain and Coke? We checked and luckily enough, we got the trademark shipwreck and we decided it's called the Spice Shipwreck Spiced. And our artist just put shipwreck really big. I knew the ship wheel would be perfect, but the way he framed it was so good. We just stuck with it. And uh, of course, we kicked it off and everybody immediately said, I'm getting shipwrecked. And of course, I'm like, I, I missed it. I totally missed the getting shipwrecked. And when our legal team checked, it's totally fine. We don't mean shipwreck like that. We just mean, you know, 
state of mind. Don't wreck your ship, but get That's shipwrecked cool. on your own beach. I mean, um, it's cool. The story's awesome. That was it. And now, you know, we've evolved to, we put shipwreck on all of the flavors we have, and uh, we put Brindley smaller. We've kind of made it smaller over the years. We want to keep the family because family sells, but, you know, the full name Brindley Gold Shipwreck Rum is a mouthful yeah. where we want Brindley on the label, but we want shipwreck to be the trademark. And I really think that's what it should be. And I think we're at right now that we've talked, Christy, is how you take that next step of emphasizing that yeah. and telling the old salesman and accounts that know us as Brindley's. Yeah. Call a shipwreck now. We are the Brindley's, but call a shipwreck. So that's um, our conundrum right now. Tell me before we wrap up, I want to hear some advice. So what would you say to, some, like you are almost 20 years into this and you probably had some ups and downs, just like all entrepreneurs have. Do you have any one piece of advice that you would give someone who was either starting or struggling or wondering, should I keep at it? What should I do? This is starting any business, not just in the spirit world, huh? Yeah. You can say whatever you want. You can talk about Yeah. This. I would say if you're passionate, if you get excited when you do it, because the first couple of years, especially, I was excited all the time. If you're excited when you do it, you know, trust that. Like, keep doing the things that get you excited and don't give up. Don't give up as soon as you get a setback. We've had so many setbacks through the years and you kind of just, you got to learn from it. You learn from your setbacks and it almost makes you stronger. It definitely makes you stronger. The other advice I'd say is, and this is something we did by accident because we didn't have the multi-million dollar budget in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you think, oh, it'd be fantastic if you had, you know, X million dollars to start the brand. But I think the difference is in the beginning, if you had that, you might lose it doing the wrong thing. Right, right. Because you don't know. Right, right. We didn't have the money to lose doing the wrong thing. We basically just had to learn from trial and error and trying to do it. You know, we always say in the beginning, the marketing was done by just us, the just us company. It's just us. And, um, That definitely helped. You know, obviously, as you grow and you want to get to the next level, like we're trying to now, it helps to have a bigger budget because you kind of know the things that have already worked. Yeah. So I'd say don't be dismayed by a small budget and get excited. And the other one, I think the other thing that is really important in the beginning, this is my mother always said, and she's really the push behind all this to get started and just do it is that you make your path public. So if you're going to uh, start a brand or write a book or do anything, if you make your path public, avenues will open for you. Mm-hmm. That uh, sometimes you think you don't want to make your path public because, oh, you're sticking your neck out there. Yeah. And your neighbors and your friends are going to say, how's that going? And if you don't do it, you're embarrassed. But the honest truth is that if you start talking about it, it almost puts you on the hook that yeah. you care enough and now you got to do it. And little did you know, the guy down the street has a perfect connection for you. So good. Such great advice. I love it. And I haven't heard it from anybody. And that's what I love about this podcast because no one has said that so far. And I hope you tell your mom how much I <laughs> that because I do. that's I do. the truth. Like if you keep it to yourself, you're going to keep it to yourself and then it's not going to grow. That's really awesome advice. I love it. Thank you. I love you, mom. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, I hope she hears that. That's really cool. Thank you. Of course. Any last words before we wrap? I'd say drink more rum. <laughs> and uh, get, get shipwrecked responsibly. No, I'd say just let's all enjoy the summer to come and knock on wood the end of the worst of the pandemic and oh, a lot more, right? Yeah, a lot more mojitos and rum runners and rum punches with friends. You're making me want one right now, that's for sure. <laughs> Look, and it's 10 o'clock, it's at the exact I know, right, right? Time. exactly right time. That's awesome. That's five o'clock so somewhere. That's really, really great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.